be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. Hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name Shelah. He was at Chizeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur from his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brother's. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. And it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was, when she was giving birth, that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened, and he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. 
Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. In 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg and set off the Protestant Reformation. The very first of Luther's theses was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Well, our text this morning demonstrates, I believe, the importance of repentance for the Christian life. We've come to this story of Judah and his children, and it's not a flattering story. In fact, it's not an easy story for us to deal with. It kind of offends our sensibilities to some extent, and it's fascinating to me that Scripture would include stories like this accounts of such sin and wickedness in the lives of the patriarchs. I mean, it's obvious that Scripture is making no attempt here uh, to make these men and women out to be some sort of super saints. It's very honest about their failings. But we might ask why God chose to include uh, such lurid accounts in the Scripture Well, there are a couple of reasons, I believe, for the inclusion of the events here in Genesis 38. One is that this is a record of the line of Judah and of his descendants, which will ultimately lead to Christ. So this is an important historical record. Second, it appears to be sort of an interruption in the story of Joseph. In chapter 37, we saw Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Chapter 39, we'll pick up and continue the story of Joseph pretty much through the end of the book of Genesis. So chapter 38 seems like an interruption here, but I think it's done intentionally because chapter 38 sets up for us an important theological theme that will be explored more in chapter 39. The events of this chapter deal with the sins of lust, fornication, and adultery and point us toward the grace and mercy of God in our repentance. But the events of the next chapter will deal with the same sins. But there we will see the true nature of these sins. And so these two chapters are working in concert together. And they're taking place at roughly the same time historically as well. Chapter 38 begins with, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. Well, what is that time? Well, that time is a reference to the time in which Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in chapter 37. The events of this chapter, of course, take place over the course of years. Judah gets married, has children. They grow and get married. So at least 17 or 18 years have passed during this chapter. Well, in chapter 39, uh, we will begin to see the story of Joseph in slavery in Egypt. And remember, Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. And 
He's 30 by the time he is brought out of prison in Egypt to stand before Pharaoh. So at least 13 years pass in the next couple chapters. And so these events are taking place over the same period of time. But this is the story of Judah. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob by his first wife, Leah. Reuben, his firstborn, if you'll remember, had defiled himself with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi, the second and third-born sons, had defiled themselves with their cruelty and vengeance against the men of Shechem. And here we have the story of Judah, the fourth-born son, and his sin. But things are different in Judah's story than they were in his brother's. Because in the story of his brothers, there is no sign of repentance. Simeon and Levi, in fact, when their father confronted them concerning their cruelty, defended their actions rather than repent of them. And there is no indication that Reuben in any way repented of his sin either. But here in chapter 38, I think we have a clear demonstration of Judah's repentance. But before he repents, there's some rather shocking sins that occur. And this, this sets him out from his brothers, I believe, this fact that he repents after he sins. So let's look at the sins that he commits leading up to his repentance. The first thing that we might note is that verse 2 tells us that he married a Canaanite woman. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. Now, her name is not Shua. That's her father's name. We see that clearly in verse 12. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. So Judah's wife is the daughter of Shua. We don't know what her name is, but she's a Canaanite woman. Now, Jacob's sons had to find wives somewhere. And the available options were uh, those who were descended from Esau, those who were descended from Ishmael, or those who were Canaanite. But as we saw in chapter 37, the Ishmaelites themselves have interbred with the people of the land such that uh, they can be called Ishmaelites and Midianites even in the same verse. And so there really is no distinction now between the Ishmaelites and the Canaanites. So Jacob's sons had to find wives somewhere. So we're not exactly shocked that he married a Canaanite woman, but still it does uh, tend to give us a hint that things are not going to go well in this story. His wife bears three sons to Judah, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now scripture skips over the boy's childhood and, and goes right to adulthood as Judah begins to arrange a marriage for his oldest in verse 6. Then Judah's wife Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, aside from genealogies and other points in the Scripture, everything we know about Tamar we find here in chapter 38. We don't know uh, what her family background is. She could have been a Canaanite. Uh, we're not certain. It doesn't tell us. I think it's likely that she was a Canaanite. And the reason I say that is, is because when we get to Matthew chapter 1 and have the genealogy of Christ, Tamar is one of only four women who are listed in that genealogy. The other three are Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, Ruth, a Moabite, and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So what do these four women have in common? They're outsiders to the nation of Israel. They are not descended from uh, Israel's family. So the inclusion of Tamar in that list seems to me to include that she has this in common with them. 
What's interesting is the care that is taken there in Matthew 1 to list in the genealogy of Christ four non-Jewish women from whom Christ is descended, which makes the point that Christ not only was descended from the nation of Israel, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from David, that he has the right to the throne of Israel, but that Christ was descended from the nations, that all people have an interest in Christ as their Lord and Redeemer. And so Judah takes this woman, Tamar, to be the wife for his firstborn, Ur. Now Judah's son is not a great guy. Apparently, he is downright wicked. And so God strikes him dead in verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. We're not told what his sins were that, that led to this point, but it's clear that he was an evil man, and so God struck him dead. This only happens a handful of times in Scripture, and so it is uh, somewhat noteworthy. His wickedness must have been quite remarkable that God would strike him dead. Following his death, though, Judah arranges what will later become known as a Leverite marriage. If you ever heard this term, Leverite marriage is one in which uh, one man dies without having offspring, and so his brother then marries his wife, and the firstborn son will be raised to carry on the name of the dead brother. Uh, the word Leverite actually comes from the Latin, which mean, the word that means brother-in-law, so you can see where the term comes from. This law will later be encoded into the national law of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the events here of chapter 38 in Genesis show us that this practice was... uh, common in the land of Israel uh, among the people of Israel hundreds of years before it was encoded into their law. And so this is what is done. Ur dies without offspring, and so Judah takes Tamar and gives her to his second-born son, Onan. And so Onan uh, now is supposed to raise up a child to be an heir for his brother, but he doesn't want to do this. And we're not told why he doesn't want to. It could be that he was greedy for the inheritance and didn't want his brother to have an offspring who would partake in the inheritance. Or it could be just simple rebellion against the wishes of his father or what he knew to be the will of God. But for whatever reason, Onan refused to provide an heir, though seems willing to fulfill his own lust. And so this leads to his wicked act for which the Lord strikes him dead along with his brother. So Tamar has now had two husbands who are both dead, and only Judah's youngest son is left. But he's still young enough that Judah is able to tell Tamar that she's going to have to wait In verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. But he's not entirely honest with Tamar here. For he said, and I take that to be to himself or in his own mind and heart, lest he also die like his brothers. 
And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. He, he clearly doesn't want to marry his youngest son to Tamar. And so he lies to her about this, sends her back to her father's house. And, and he seems to have blamed her for the death of his first two sons. He seems to have been putting the blame on her. If I marry her to Shelah, he will likely die as his brothers did. So Tamar's not to blame. Judah's sons were wicked and the Lord killed them. So he's falsely maligning her as the cause and the reason for their death. So you can see the sins beginning to take place in Judah. He's lying. He's falsely accusing someone else or at least blaming her in his heart for the death of his sons. Tamar seems to believe his explanation to her, though, and so she goes to her father's house to comply with Judah's wishes and wait for Shelah to grow old enough to marry. But then time passes. Judah's wife dies. And after his period of mourning is passed in which he is comforted, Judah decides to go out to the sheep shearing. Now, we know from the story of David, Nabal, and Abigail in 1 Samuel 25 that the sheep shearing uh, is a time of celebration. All the workers are gathered together. They shear the sheep. And then at the end of the event, there's a feast. And I can tell you from having worked on a ranch in Wyoming that this is still true today. All the ranch hands from the surrounding area would gather together on one ranch for branding season, and we would work really hard for a day or two, depending on how large the ranch was. And at the end of that event, there would be a feast. And then we'd do it all the next week at a different ranch. And so Judah has lost his wife, he has mourned for her, and now he's decided, I'm going to go to the festivities where my men are shearing the sheep. And he's going to take his close friend, Hirah, with him. Now Tamar hears that Judah is going to the sheep shearing, and by this time she has realized that he has lied to her, that he does not intend to keep his word and marry her to Shelah, who is now old enough but she's not been given to him as a wife. And so she's sitting at home in her father's house, rejected and despised. And she's determined she's going to do something about it. Now we might ask why. Well, if we put ourselves in her place, at that time, bearing children and especially giving birth to the heir of an important family was considered an honor and was something that a woman very much looked forward to. And so Tamar is determined to accomplish this. And since her father-in-law has lied to her, shunned her, she takes matters into her own hands. And so we read in verse 14, So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. And so you can picture Tamar at home in her father's house, dressed in black as a grieving widow. Years have gone by, and she has not been able to put off her widow's garments because she has not been married to the next son. She's waiting for her father-in-law to keep his promise, and she sees now that he does not intend to do so. So she changes clothes, veils her face, and sits out by the road where she knows he will pass by as a prostitute would do. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 10, And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So there sits 
Tamar on the side of the road at this intersection where she knows Judah will be coming by. And she's dressed herself like a harlot. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Now at this point, uh, Judah has lied to her. He's deceived her. He has maligned her, blamed her for his son's death. And now he sees her sitting there veiled and assumes that she is a harlot, a prostitute. But this sin he is about to commit still could have been avoided. But instead of turning his eyes away from the temptation, he turns his feet toward it in verse 16. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his his daughter-in-law. Now, there's sin enough to go around here to blame both of them. She knew she was committing the sin of incest. She knew that she was committing the sin of adultery against her betrothed husband, Shelah. Judah didn't know who she was, but he knew she wasn't his wife. He knew that he wasn't married to her. He thought that she was a prostitute and that he was committing fornication. So he's committing sin willingly, but so is she. But what should he have done? Well, he should have turned his eyes away from the temptation and kept his feet on the path. Instead, he kept his eyes on the temptation and turned his feet out of the path. Exactly the opposite of what he should have done. And in doing so, he entered into grave sin. So she bargains with him uh, for payment and for a surety of the payment. He doesn't have uh, a goat there to give her as payment. And so she bargains and he gives her his signet ring, uh, which seems to have probably been attached to a cord of some kind, probably with an identifiable weave or color uh, into the the cord pattern, similar to what we might think of uh, a clan tartan that identifies what clan you're a part of. And we saw many of those yesterday at the Celtic festival. So he gives her his signet. He gives her this identifiable mark of who he is as the, the head of this particular tribe that will come to be. He gives her his, this cord that identifies him. He gives her his staff. These are three marks of identification. She didn't really want the, the promised goat. What she wanted was these personal markers of identity that she could later use to prove whose child she bore. And so after this uh, sinful act is complete, she hurries home and changes back into her widow's clothing. Now Judah gets home from uh, his festival, his feast, and he sends his friend uh, with a goat to go pay off this prostitute and get back his signet and cord and staff. But his friend can't, can't locate her. He's supposed to pay this woman. He can't find her. There's no woman there. And so he kind of discreetly asks, where's the, the harlot that would sit out here by this intersection? And nobody knows anything about a prostitute working that street corner. So he returns to Judah and delivers the news. And notice Judah's response in verse 23. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. Now, Judah didn't want to look any harder for this woman because he feared the shame that would come from others knowing his sin. They they couldn't very well go around asking for a woman who happens to have Judah's signet. If they did, people would know he had gone into a harlot. They would know his sin, and not only his sin, they would know his foolishness. That he not only went into a prostitute, 
but he gave her his signet? He would be a laughingstock. So he thinks that his sin is hidden, that no one knows about it except him and this friend of his. And he chooses not to pursue it any further because he doesn't want to be shamed. And I think this is a lesson for us that as we continue the, sin, the story of Judah here, we will see that his sin is not nearly so well hidden as he believed it to be. Secret sin is only secret in our imagination. It will come to light sooner or later. We often try to keep our sins secret. We maybe harbor this sin and indulge in it, whatever it is. And even if we're successful in keeping it from other people, be assured that the Lord sees all. He knows all. Your sin is not secret from the one to whom you will have to give an account. It's the height of folly and arrogance to think that we could keep our sin hidden from an almighty and all-knowing God. But we see this pattern over and over again, don't we? Adam and Eve hid in the trees in the garden. Judah tries to keep his sin hidden, tries to keep it from becoming known. David tries to cover up his sin with Bathsheba and keep it secret. But it always comes to light. Sin is best confessed and repented of immediately. This shame that Judah wants to avoid by keeping his sin secret will actually increase over time. In verse 24, we see the passage of time, and it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, St. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Three months have gone by. And Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. Now she's supposed to be at her father's house, chaste and in mourning because her two husbands have died. She's espoused to his youngest son, Shelah, And so Judah responds with indignation. He's willing to press the case against her and calls for the death penalty by burning. Just how black his heart has grown in his sin. David resorted to murder to try and cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Judah here is engaging in wild hypocrisy. He's willing to put to death Tamar and her unborn baby for a sin that he's guilty of. Later in the course of Israel's history, stoning will be the prescribed penalty for adultery. But in Leviticus chapter 21 verse 9, we're told, The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. So see, Judah is not pressing charges against her for adultery. He's pressing charges against her for bringing shame on the family. And remember, he was trying to avoid shame by not seeking out this woman that he had given his signet to. What a hypocrite. He went into a prostitute, and then to avoid the shame of having it known that he had done so, he didn't go and get his signet back. He sinned, he acted the fool, and he tried to avoid the shame of it. But now Tamar, he believes, has publicly brought shame on his family, and he wants her put to death and her baby with her. 
But then she speaks up in her own defense in verse 25. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. Now, there's a little bit of irony here if you would read this in connection with the previous chapter. You'll remember in chapter 37, when Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, they took his robe, which was very distinctive. They dipped it in blood and they sent it to their father, lying to him about what had happened to Joseph, attempting to deceive Jacob. And when they sent the coat to Jacob, if you'll remember what they asked him, do you know whether this is your son's tunic or not? Well, now Judah is being asked a very similar question. Do you know who this signet cord and staff belong to? And I imagine this being a very similar moment in Judah's life to the one that his descendant David will later experience when Nathan confronts him with his sin and says, Thou art the man. Surprise. The sin that I thought was secret has now been made public. The shame that Judah tried to avoid has come home in a spectacular way. It wasn't just his sin of fornication and his foolishness that's been revealed, but now his hypocrisy has been revealed. His pride has been revealed. He was calling for the death penalty for her for a sin that he was also guilty of. Matthew Henry makes this astute observation. He says, It is a common thing for men to be severe against the very sins in others in which yet they allow themselves. And so, in judging others, they condemn themselves. And we find this to be true in our own experience, don't we? We see our sin in the life of someone else, and we have a tendency to be very harsh towards them. It stirs up our feelings of guilt because we know we're guilty. And so we react against the sin that we're guilty of when we see it in other people. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. The judgment of men may be based on hypocrisy, but the judgment of God is according to truth. What is hidden will be made known. Our hypocrisy will be revealed. But when Judah's sin is revealed, when our sin is revealed, this is the crucial moment. How will we respond? Will we respond with pride and anger, denial, or with humility and repentance? Judah responds with humility and repentance in verse 26. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Now, there are three important aspects of Judah's repentance in this verse that I think are important for us to learn from. First, notice that he acknowledges his sin. So Judah acknowledged them. Now, properly speaking, he's acknowledging the signet, the cord, and the staff. He's, he's saying, yet, those are mine. I own those. These tokens that she has brought as evidence of who the father of this child is. Yeah, I recognize them. They're mine. He's acknowledging publicly that he sinned. 
He didn't try to deny or hide his sin any longer. And this is the first step in repentance. We have to admit the sin. You can't repent of a sin that you won't admit to. If we are to repent of sin, we must first confess it. No one knew, except his friend Hirah, that he had given these signet, this signet cord and staff to this woman that he thought was a prostitute. He could have tried to deny it. It was his word against hers. He could have said, those were stolen from me. She's setting me up. We might have even expected him to do something like that. I mean, he's already proven himself to be a liar. He lied to her earlier in the chapter. But he didn't do that. When he was confronted with his sin, he humbled himself and confessed his sin. This sort of humble confession of sin is a gift of God's grace to us. Pride is what moved him to try and hide his sin originally. Pride gets in the way of confession of sin. Pride is really at the root of all our other sins. Adam and Eve, if you'll remember, wanted to be like God. That's pride. Thinking that we know better than God what is good for us. That's pride. Thinking that we could hide our sin from God and from others. That's pride. Thinking that we could get away with sin. No one will know. There'd be no consequences. That's pride. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Now, if we follow Lewis's logic here, then Judah's sin of fornication, his sin of lying, these weren't his main sins. His pride was. And he tried to cover up and hide his sin for the shame because he was proud. When the first great awakening happened here in America, Jonathan Edwards was one of the key figures Uh, preachers in that awakening, but he was also one of its sharpest critics. And writing after the fact to criticize some of what had happened during the first awakening there, Jonathan Edwards wrote this, the first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. Christians who are zealous for Christ. Pride is the chief way that Satan gets in and stirs up trouble. He says, It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all others. Our pride must be dealt with. Humility is not the normal state of the sinful human heart. Pride is. Humility, then, is a gift from God that follows 
our regeneration. But at times, God has to jolt us a little bit, like he did David, like he did Judah. Thou art the man. But this is the grace and the mercy of God to us, that he exposes our sin so that we can be brought to a place of humility and repentance. So think about this. The next time your sin is made known, you can't hide it any longer, that's a gift from God, a gift that he has exposed your sin so that you might repent. John Chrysostom once remarked, Humility is the root, mother, nurse, foundation, and bond of all Christian virtue. Pride is thinking that we can be like God. Humility is knowing that we're not. Humility is having a realistic view of who we are in the eyes of God and before others. It's the grace of God that he works in our circumstances and in our hearts to humble us. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. The first step in repentance is to humbly acknowledge your sin. The second step of repentance that we see here is that when we are humbled and our sin is exposed, We are to respond by focusing on our sin and not the sins of others. Again, this is not the natural state of the sinful heart. When Adam was first confronted with his sin, what did he do? Her fault. Following Adam, we might have expected Judah to point the finger at Tamar and say, Her fault. She knew what she was doing. She knew she was committing adultery. She knew I was her father-in-law. I didn't know. Her sin's worse than mine. We might have expected him to respond that way, but he doesn't. Instead, he responds and says, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. Now, he's not approving of her sin. He's not excusing it. He is simply focusing on his own sin as he ought to do. We can't repent of another person's sin for them. We have to repent of our sin. This is why Christ tells us to remove the beam that is in our own eye, deal with our own sin before attempting to help a brother, not condemn him, but help him with his sin. We can't see the heart of another person. But by God's grace, we can get a glimpse of our own. It's easy to see the sin of others when it's visible and to get outraged about it. But by the grace of God, if we get a glimpse of our own heart, of the blackness of our own sin, we know more about our sin than we do about the sins of others. All we can tell about the sins of others is what's visible. But our own sin, when God exposes it and reveals our hearts to us, we know the sinful motivations of our hearts. So I can say with complete confidence, I am the worst sinner I know. All of us should be able to say the same. After condemning Tamar for her sin and calling for her death, Judah now sees his own sin exposed, and he realized just how wicked his heart was. 
These saw not only his sin of fornication and lust, his sin of failing to keep his word to her, but his sin of pride. His hypocrisy was exposed. And so he confessed his sin, humbled himself, and dealt with his own sin and stopped worrying about trying to deal with hers. And again, this is the grace of God that allows us to see our own sin and not to hypocritically focus on the sins of others. But all of this would amount to nothing if we failed to turn from our sin and cease to practice it. As Matthew Henry says, those who do not, who do not truly repent of their sins do not forsake them. We spend a lot of time in Reformed circles talking about justification by faith alone, and rightly so. But that faith cannot be alone. It must be accompanied by the fruit of faith, which is the turning away from our sin and toward Christ in repentance. Christ must become the desire of our hearts rather than our sin. A changed life is not the cause, but rather the evidence of salvation. But here's the thing. We won't turn away from something that our heart still loves. Even if the behavior has changed, if the heart has not changed, we haven't really repented of our sin. It's one thing to shepherd behavior. It's another thing to shepherd the heart. I'm not saying that we shouldn't change our behavior. We should. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't mistake that for true repentance, for a change of the heart. It's a result of repentance, but repentance starts in the heart, not in the behavior. No amount of outward sanctification will result in justification, but justification will always result in sanctification. And we see this in Judah. After he acknowledged his sin and focused on his own heart rather than hers, it says, and he never knew her again. He didn't return to his sin. He returned to God. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we turn from our sin and turn toward God in repentance? Not just outwardly, but in our hearts. Well, we do this by seeing not only the ugliness of our sin, but the beauty of God's holiness. In the book of Joel, we're given a great picture of repentance Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Don't put on an outward show of repentance, but truly repent in your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Our motivation for repentance is the very nature and character of God himself. God is gracious. That doesn't mean that he observes cultural niceties, that he's, he's gracious in his movements. That's not what it means. It means that he is gracious towards his subjects as a king would be. The best way to think of it is like this. God is on his throne, high and lifted up. We are creatures of the dirt who have rebelled against him. And when our sin is exposed, we humble ourselves before our king, bow to the dirt before him. We're not lifting ourselves up to God. 
God must graciously stoop down from his throne and lift us up. He is gracious. He's not only gracious, he's merciful. He's aware of our sinful condition, of our being under judgment because of our sin, but he purposes to forgive and to save us in spite of our sin. Psalm 78 says, But full of pity he forgave their sin, them did not slay, nor stirred up all his wrath, but oft his anger turned away. For that they were but fading flesh to mind he did recall, a wind that passeth soon away and not returns at all. God is merciful and compassionate toward us in our humility. In addition, he is slow to anger. He's not a hothead. God is patient with us. This is God's goodness toward us. We don't deserve his patience. We deserve punishment. And yet, he bears with us. He restrains his anger. Three months went by as God patiently waited to reveal Judah's sin to him at the right time. The godly meditate on the perfection of God's patience and realize This is not an evidence of a lack of power on God's part, but rather a proof of it. Look how quick Judah was to jump to this accusation, to this call for Tamar's death. It doesn't take any strength at all to let your anger go. It takes strength to restrain your anger. Judah lashed out quickly, but God restrained his anger against Judah's sin patiently waiting to reveal it to Judah and bring him to repentance. And God abounds in steadfast love and great kindness towards those who repent. Scriptures speak of God's loving kindness and say that it endures forever, that it is better than life, that it is revealed to us in Christ. It leads us to repentance. It inspires our praise. It comforts us in affliction, and it serves as a basis for our prayers. This is a perfection of God that is worth meditating upon. God abounds in loving kindness. And finally, God is gracious. He relents from doing harm. And remember that the harm that the prophet speaks of there is the impending judgment of God on sinners if they will not repent. But God changes course when we repent, not because he's changed his mind, but because his purpose all along was repentance and restoration. God even blesses us after we repent. He is generous to us. He displays this generosity by blessing his people when they repent. Our our sin deserves judgment. But when we repent, God not only forgives, but he blesses us. There in Joel, he says that God would leave behind the grain and the that was necessary for them to offer sacrifices to God. Our very act of worship is a blessing from God that he allows us to worship him, that he provides for us to worship him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Forgiveness is fine. It's good. It's wonderful. But being restored to that relationship with our Creator, that's worth celebrating. Repentance from start to finish is a gift 
of God's grace that leads us both to a, a humble admission of our sin and a determined repenting of it, turning away from it. Or to put it another way, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Well, according to this definition, there are three key aspects of repentance, a true sense or grief and hatred of my sin, a turning away from sin towards God in obedience to Him, and that is motivated by an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ to me. That definition comes from the Baptist Catechism, question number 92. Meditate on God Himself and see if you don't find Him compelling, so amazing that sin loses its appeal, that the shame is no longer matters. See if you don't find yourself brokenhearted that you ever chose anything over this wonderful and amazing and glorious and generous God and then return to him and rest in his mercy. Judah's story after his repentance concludes here with the birth of twin sons. The midwife marks the one that starts to come out first by tying a scarlet thread around his wrist, but then his hand is withdrawn and his twin brother somehow manages to come out first. It reminds us of the birth of Jacob and Esau as they wrestled in the womb. Perez struggled to be born first, like the one in Christ's parable who takes the kingdom of heaven by force. It is through Perez that God chose to bring the line of David and ultimately Christ into the world. What blessing and mercy and grace to Judah that his sinful act resulted in the chosen offspring who would bring the Messiah into the world. What an example of repentance Judah is and what a monument to the mercy of God the birth of his sons is. And when we see this sort of sinful behavior in the life of the patriarchs, when we see the faults and the sins that they had to repent of, the ancestors of Jesus, I think it allows us to more fully see the riches of God's grace that shine so brightly in that Christ would take on human flesh in order to redeem sinners such as you and I. So let us be thankful for repentance. It is a gift from God. Let us seek it with humility. Let us plead with God to give us eyes to see not only the sinful blackness of our own hearts, but the beauty of God's grace, mercy, patience, love, and generosity towards us. Let's pray.